The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now tonight as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, uh, I want to consider a scripture that you might not think has anything at all to do with this ordinance. Uh, I'm going to preach from the Old Testament this evening, but we're going to begin in the New Testament. In Revelation 11:19, John wrote, And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings, and an earthquake and great hail. Now in John's vision, what we read here in Revelation 11, John saw the ark of his testament. His there refers to Christ, and this ark that he saw in heaven appears to be the prototype of the ark of the covenant that God had Moses built in uh, the book of Exodus. In Exodus, it's called the Ark of the Covenant, or here in Revelation 11, it's called the Ark of His Testimony. Covenant and testimony mean the same, and so we know that this Ark that John saw in heaven corresponds to the one that Moses made. Now, the tabernacle, as you're very much well aware of, was God's meeting place for His people, meeting with Israel in the wilderness, and God gave Moses a pattern for everything that he put in the tabernacle. Uh, things that are in the, were in the tabernacle were made after a pattern of things that are in heaven. So in other words, the, the tabernacle pictured things that are in heaven. Now in the Lord's Supper, we also have a picture. This is a picture of Christ and his death and his work of redemption when he died on the cross and brought us into fellowship with God. And so the Lord's Supper represents God satisfied, God satisfied by the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross of Calvary. And through that sacrifice, we're able to have communion with God. Now, we need to understand that the Lord's Supper is not as much about communion that we have with one another as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but more particularly, it speaks of the communion that we're able to have with God because of what Christ has done for us. Now, in the Old Testament tabernacle worship, there are many pictures of Christ, many different ones, but the Ark of the Covenant, that is the main one that pictured Christ. It most particularly spoke of the atoning work of Christ. Now, we can talk about the white linen fence that surrounded the tabernacle enclosure, and that was emblematic of the pureness of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, We can talk about the door that went into the tabernacle. There was only one door, only one way in, and that represents that Jesus Christ is the only way that we have to come to the Father. We would make that trip into the inside, go through that only one door, and there we would see on one side of the tabernacle there's a lampstand. And that lampstand pictured Christ as the light of the world. Looking directly in front of you, you would see an altar of incense standing before the veil that separated the inner compartment from the outer compartment. And that 
altar of incense is something that I actually spoke about last week in the Easter message when we talked about how Christ is our intercessor. And that was pictured in that altar that stood there. Or we could talk about the golden boards that made up the structure of it. We could talk about the bars that held those boards together, the silver sockets that they sat on, the lavers, the altars, and all these other things that are in the tabernacle. All of them speak of Christ in some way, but it's the Ark of the Covenant The Ark of the Covenant is the main, main part of the tabernacle worship because that represents the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the greatest picture that we have in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant. It is the Ark of His testimony. And so it is the most important furnishing because it represents the Spirit God who became incarnate, who became the God-man, who came in human flesh to be a sacrifice for sin. It speaks of the king of kings, the one that angels adored, the one that condescended to the lowest state of man and made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sins, to be ransomed, redeemed, and then to come into the presence of God. And so just as the Lord's Supper is given as an ordinance that uh, particularly memorializes Christ in this New Testament era, so back in the Old Testament times, That was the Ark of the Covenant that showed the work of the Messiah and how that he would come to be the salvation of God's people. Now this evening, I'd like to talk to you about the Ark, and I want to give you some helpful pointers, hopefully, about how that relates to the person of Christ and the work of Christ and also the observance of this communion. Now I'd like for us to notice, first of all this evening, the focus of worship. The focus of worship. But I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 25. If you would find that. And uh, we're studying public worship on Sunday evenings in our series of Living for Jesus. And maybe we could just kind of tack this message on to, uh, to be a supplement to those messages that we're preaching. Now, in Exodus, Moses was given instructions for the construction of the ark. And for sure, we're not speaking of an ark like the one that Noah built. This is not a huge sea-going vessel that holds animals, but this is a very small box, a very heavy box because of its particular construction, and it took two men to carry it, and God told Moses to build this ark of the covenant. Now, in verse number 10 of Exodus 25 is where I'll begin reading. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubs of gold, a beaten work shalt thou make them, and the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the other end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat shall shall ye make the cherubs on the two ends thereof. 
And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. Now there we have the description of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a wooden box that was overlaid with gold. It was rectangular. It was 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Now you do the math on that and you'll come up with about 19 cubic feet, which is about 3 cubic feet more than what I have in the trunk of my Honda or just big enough to put my Miata inside of it. Uh, But anyway, that's the size of the ark. Not a very big box at all. And I'll speak about this more in just a moment, but it was wood, which represents, made of wood, which represents the humanity of Christ, and the gold that it's made of represents the deity of Christ. Now, the ark of the covenant was the focus of tabernacle worship because that represented Christ as a person. Now, you're aware that sometimes... We speak of Christ as being the object of our worship. And we need to understand very clearly that when we say object, we're not talking about an image that's made of him. We're not talking about a crucifix that someone might make to worship him. No, we're talking about the person of Christ himself. He is the object of our worship. We're speaking about that living person who is Christ. Now, the Bible centers on Christ as the person of worship. The Bible itself is his story. Everything that you read in Scripture has something to do with Jesus Christ and the work that he came to do. It will relate to his life as a man, him coming in the flesh, being born of the virgin, and so on. All of it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ being as the God-man and the one who bridges the gap between God and man. And so in the holiest place of all... Behind the veil, dividing the outer sanctuary from the inner sanctuary, was a sacred place where the ark was kept. And that is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to give you two aspects as we begin of this ark that made it the focus of worship. First, it was a sacred throne. The ark was a sacred throne because the lid of that ark was called a mercy seat. Now, in the New Testament, the word mercy seat is used only one time. Uh, in fact, it appears only once in Hebrews 9.5 is all one word, mercy seat. But we find another word that corresponds to that, and that is the word propitiation. Propitiation is used three times in the New Testament. It has the same meaning as mercy seat. And what it relates to is the satisfaction that Christ made to the Father for our sins when he died on the cross. So the Bible speaks of Christ being our propitiation, and when it says that, that word is a reference to that mercy seat that was on the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was a throne of grace, and to go into that room where it was kept was to enter into the Holy of Holies where there was a visible manifestation of God's presence. And when the high priest went into the inner sanctuary, there stood before him the Ark of the Covenant with his mercy, its mercy seat, and there he was in the presence of God. And God showed himself in a, in a brilliant light 
that was called the Shekinah. Now, don't worry about looking that up in your Bible because you won't find the word Shekinah in the Bible. It's actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which means that which dwells. And so when the high priest went in where the Ark of the Covenant was and he saw that light, that was God dwelling with his people. Now, certainly that reminds us of Christ. Uh, He is the manifestation of the invisible God. He is the express image of his person. And when Christ is present, that is God dwelling with us. In John 1.14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And literally, that scripture means that Christ tabernacled with us. He came to live among us, and Christ still dwells with us. And we're not able to see Christ, of course, but he dwells with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come to dwell in us. And I think that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're blessed because we know this, that Christ dwells with us. And we see the picture. We know that he he lives with us. and, and, And we come into the presence of God when we do this, I think, in a very, very special way. And then secondly, we note that the ark was put into a secret room. There was an element of mystery about the ark. No one could see behind the veil where it was kept. Whenever the ark was transported, it was always covered. The average Israelite never saw the ark. He was never permitted to see it. And you'll notice in Scripture, whenever the ark is taken out of where it's supposed to be and misused, there's always trouble for Israel. When they don't honor the ark as they should, they were always in trouble. No one was permitted to touch the ark. You remember the story of Uzzah, how that he thought that he was doing a good thing when they were transporting the ark in a way they shouldn't have, by the way. But they were carrying the ark on a cart and the the oxen started to stumble and the ark started to shift and Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the ark to steady it. It looked like a good thing, but what God did was strike him dead right on the spot when he touched it. God said, you're not supposed to touch the ark. Now, or then I should say, was... Not the time for God to be known intimately. Oh, there was an element of secrecy, of sacredness about that ark that had to be maintained. And there's a reason for that. And that's because in the Old Testament, Jesus was not completely revealed. Oh, there are many hidden things about Christ that they didn't understand. And the ark was put into that secret room where no one could see it. And when I say no one, there's an exception... On one day of the year, the high priest could go behind that veil and there he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat for atonement for the people. And that's the only time that anyone was ever able to go in to see that Ark of the Covenant. And that secrecy was maintained as Israel waited for Christ to be revealed in the first advent. There was a curtain there, a curtain that kept them out, a veil that divided the outer sanctuary where the priest normally went about his duties every day. That separated from the inner sanctuary where he could never enter except on that one special time of the year. Now, how does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, the Apostle Paul uh, shows us that God has now given us open access to Christ that we never had before. In Romans 16.25 it says, Now to him that is a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. 
And so Paul says, not until Christ came, not until Christ died, was that way opened up to where the Ark of the Covenant was. You remember, the veil in the temple was torn in two, and now access to God has been granted. And so we can say that the gospel itself is the secret room that's been opened up so that we're able to approach God and, and know God in an intimate way. John said in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Now when Christ came, he could be touched. The word of life was seen, he was looked upon. He was handled. No longer is he shrouded in mystery. And today we have that same witness, only we experience it by faith. We handle the word of life by faith. And we see him in this beautiful emblem that we have of the Lord's Supper as we touch and we eat the bread, as we drink the cup that represents his blood. So that's the revelation of the secret. And the secret is out. And that's because the one that was represented by the ark has come and he died for our sins. Now, secondly, I'd like for us to compare the ark as a figure, the figure of worship. Now, if the ark represents the Son of God, then the ark has to be a figure of true worship. Now, the high priest knew that. So did all the people that were in Israel. They, they knew that when the priests went behind that veil, that there was, there was something sacred there. There was something untouchable, something so high and holy that it could represent nothing other than Jehovah God. Now, we don't know how much they understood when they built the ark. Did they wonder why that God would have them make it this way? Why, why would God say, make this box of wood and then overlay it with gold. Did they understand what that was about? Now, they, they understood gold, of course. If something is sacred there, and it's supposed to represent God, then why not make it a pure gold? They understand that. Gold is valuable. And surely gold represents God. God is king, so why not make it a pure gold? So are they confused about the materials? God says, make it of wood and of gold. And if there is going to be wood involved, then why isn't there beautiful cedar? Why is it made of that? Now, in their time, cedar was like our mahogany. It was the most valuable wood that they have. So why not make this, this ark out of cedar? Well, the materials of the ark are exceedingly important because they have to represent Christ. Wood represents the humanity of Christ. And so first we see in this Christ humanity that Jesus is incorruptible in his humanity. Now if you look at verse number 10 of the text, it says, Thou shalt make an ark of shittim wood. Not an ark of cedar. Cedar's a soft wood. But this wood is a desert wood. This is a wood that's known for its hardness and its durability. It's a it's a plant that could withstand the severity of drought. It thrives in harsh conditions. And God used that wood to represent the durability of Christ and his humanity. That he was not going to give in to temptations and trials of the human life. He wasn't going to be corrupted by the sin that infests us. He never yielded to any temptation, even when the devil had him at his weakest human moments. He still never gave in to temptation. 
Now, what God wanted was the strongest. God, God wanted the most trustworthy of all. And so he chose his own son to become human flesh. Not an angel, not some other, not some created being. No, it was God himself that became man. God is the one who has to do this. Isaiah 53 has a reference to this hardy wood that they used to make the ark. He said, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no comeliness, and when we shall see him, he has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And so the tree that they made this ark of thrived in a dry and barren land. It wasn't polished mahogany. And neither was Jesus beautiful in his humanity. Now, despite the common pictures that you see of a strikingly handsome man, no one would have ever picked Jesus because he was physically attractive. But he was strong, and he was steadfast, and he could endure the worst that was thrown at him. And his ministry was in a dry and thirsty land, wasn't it? And I'm not particularly talking about the arid conditions of the Mediterranean area. I'm speaking of a dry and thirsty land spiritually. It was barren of the Spirit of God. And Jesus came to minister in that dry and thirsty land. Jesus sat on the well and he said, Come to me. And he said, Drink of me and you'll never thirst again. And the supper represents that promise. We come here, we partake of Jesus, we eat of his flesh and we drink of his blood. John 6:53 Jesus said unto them verily verily I say unto you except ye eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood ye have no life in you Now that eating and drinking we understand we're not literally drinking blood not literally eating flesh but we understand that's a symbol of fellowship eating with one another is a symbol of fellowship and we have no fellowship with God unless we come by Christ's flesh and his blood now, an interesting little factoid about this tree that they used is that it has long, prickly thorns. Is it any coincidence that there was a crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head? Is this a tree that was chosen because that was a detail that would come out in the crucifixion? I don't know if this was the tree that was used, the plant that was used, but that's intriguing for us to think about. And it's also interesting that when you pierce the bark of this tree, there was a healing sap that oozed from it. Is that a coincidence? That when they pierced Jesus, when they drove nails into his hands and feet, when they thrust a spear into his side that outflowed a life-giving blood, a blood that cleanses us from our sins? Oh, Jesus is the balm the healing balm of the nations, as it says in Jeremiah, he's the balm in Gilead. Do you think these things are put in Scripture by accident? Oh, God's instructions were very precise because the ark must be a picture of the man. It must be a picture of Jesus, the man, and the wood is the picture of his human flesh. And we have a picture here tonight of human flesh, of his body, as we partake of this bread. And then next, Jesus is incomparable in his deity. Exodus 25:11, and thou shalt overlay it with pure gold within and without. Shalt thou overlay it, and thou shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. So Moses overlaid the wood with gold. 
And then added to the top of the Ark of the Covenant, around that mercy seat, around the edges of it, was a crown of gold. As they made it around, they, the, the edges of it pointed upwards like a crown, and that went around the entire perimeter of the mercy seat. Oh, gold stands for deity. And that crown of gold stood for our God who is supreme above all gods. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I started the message in Revelation, and it's in Revelation where we finally come to the place where we see Jesus exalted to be a king. And so it's not just the first advent that's pictured by the wood. There's also a picture of the second advent where Christ is exalted as the king. That he's going to come back as the, as the conquering king. And there you have a completeness, a complete picture of Christ in both the first and second advents. And then there's another interesting description of the ark that most people don't ever discuss. And that's found in verses 13 to 15. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And so on each side of the ark there were loops, there were rings made of gold, and they put these long staves through those rings, and that's what they used to carry the ark so they wouldn't have to touch it. Now those staves were to be there as long as Israel was in the wilderness. And as long as Canaan was not possessed, there were battles to be fought, and God was telling them, I am going to be with you in those battles. Now, those staves were never removed. Even when they took the ark and put it into the temple after it was built, they still didn't remove those because that was a symbol that God was still with them. And it's a very profound promise that we find in Scripture that David said to Solomon, For the Lord God, even my God, will be with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Is that in the supper? Is there a picture of that in the supper? Well, there is. The supper is to be observed until Christ comes. And that's a reminder, he's not forgotten us. He's going to return. He'll come back for us. He'll take us home to be with him. I mean, he told the disciples on the very night of the supper, he said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. Oh, you think about God. Who is a God like our God? Who is one that compares to him that he's able to keep all his promises? We go all the way back to the Old Testament with the promises there. God never forgets a promise no matter how long it is. He's always faithful to his promises. And so, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, he secures for us a home in heaven that's never going to fade away. Well, there's one other comparison that I'd like to make. Thirdly, is the fullness of worship. The ark represented the fullness of worship because that's exactly what worshiping Christ is. When you worship him, that's the fullness of who God is. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If I were to ask you, what does the number three represent in Scripture? What would you say? Okay, most people would say the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They might be, might be some who would say, well, the number three represents the creation, time, space, and matter. And if you said that, that would be okay because... That speaks of Christ as well, doesn't it? Because it's by him that all things are made, and by him all things consist. So when you talk about time, space, and matter, that's emblematic of the Trinity. 
Now, I think it's interesting that there are three articles that were put into the ark. And I think those three articles speak to us about the fullness of worship of the triune God. Now, Hebrews describes the articles. Hebrews 9, verses 2 to 4. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick. And now, the tabernacle, the first, he's talking about the outer part of the sanctuary. The first, wherein was the candlestick and the table, that's the table of showbread, or the table, that's the altar of incense, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That's the next compartment where the ark is. Which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So there are three articles that were placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant. There is the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, or in other words, the tables of the law. Now, very briefly, let's look at those articles. The first is the manna, and the manna stands for God's provision. And I know you're already ahead of me on this one, so uh, you don't need much explanation to make a comparison between this and the supper, that Jesus is the living bread who came down from heaven. And the manna is is the bread that God gave supernaturally in the wilderness to sustain Israel, to to give them life. And so that's the special food that God gave from heaven. And whenever we eat this bread that's in the supper, we relate that to Jesus who is the living bread. But I might add a note to that. Why did they put manna in a golden pot? And you probably know the answer to that as well. Because the gold represents deity. So there's humanity and deity with a golden pot of manna. Now the second thing that they put into the ark is the rod. Aaron's rod. And that stands for God's selection. Well this one requires just a little bit more more time for us to talk about. Also in the ark is Aaron's rod that budded. Now let me tell you just a little bit of that story. There was a, there was a great deal of contention over Moses and Aaron's selection to be the leaders of Israel. The Israelites were always unhappy about something. I mean, before Moses could ever get them across the Red Sea, they were already complaining about things. And then when they finally did get across the Red Sea, the next 40 years were spent with Israel complaining about everything that was happening. And they just never could shut up their crying for 40 years. So they continued to complain about everything. And this is just another of their complaints, that they didn't think Moses and Aaron should have all the say about where they were going and what they should do. And so they wanted also to have a part of the leadership. So they came to Moses with their complaint, and Moses said, well, all right, let's, let's have a contest, and let's see who it is that God wants to lead. And so he said, you guys come tomorrow and you bring a censer with you. And you put fire into your censer and you burn it before the Lord and then God is going to show you who that he's chosen. And so they did. There were 250 of these men that came and they put fire in their censers and Moses and Aaron brought theirs. And the end of that test was the earth opened up and swallowed all 250 of those men. I said, well, that ought to be enough to convince them. Well, it didn't for long because they came back again. And this time they complained to Moses that 250 of them had died. And they tried to put that on Moses. Well, God wasn't happy with that. And so God said, we'll just do this a little more. So he let 14,700 more of them die in a plague. 
And more of them would have died, except Moses had compassion on the people and Aaron made an atonement for them. And so God stopped the plague. But then God said, well, we're going to settle this thing once for all. So here's what we're going to do. He said, um, each of you bring a rod. Each of the tribes, you bring a rod or you cut a stick. That's what he's talking about. You cut a stick. You cut a branch. And you bring that dead stick. And you write your names on that stick. And they did. All of the tribes brought their stick with their name on it. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, they brought a stick. And Gad brought a stick. And Asher brought a stick. And Jude and so on. And Aaron put his stick in, and I suppose it had the name Levi on it because Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. So they took those dead sticks and they put them into the tabernacle. The next day they came back, and 11 of those sticks were as dead as they ever were. But one had blossomed and budded, and that was Aaron's rod. And that showed that Aaron was the one who was chosen. But what does that mean to us? Well, he put Aaron's rod into the ark, but what does that mean? Well, the ark represents Christ, and Christ is the one who was chosen by the Father. Now, do you remember the Christmas message when we read from Isaiah 42, where God said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him So Jesus was the elect servant of God, and that rod also spoke of him as the chosen one. And then what about the stick? Well, it budded. The dead came to life. Last week we had Easter, so I don't think I need to explain the connection with that, do I? The dead came to life. But also the rod blossomed. And when the blossom appears, the next thing that comes is the fruit. What does Scripture say about Jesus? He is the first fruits of the resurrection. And he blossomed in his resurrection, and there is more fruit to come. That's why it's called the first fruits, why he's called the first fruits of the resurrection, because there's more fruit to come. And what do you suppose that fruit is? You and me. We are believers in Jesus Christ. We shall rise because Jesus arose. And that's pictured there in the Ark of the Covenant. So you and I that are believers in Christ, we're going to rise. Our bodies will go into the grave. And when Jesus comes again, the graves will be opened. Our bodies will rise. God said, put the rod into the Ark. And that's a picture of God's selection. He was not going to leave his selected in the grave. He would not suffer the Holy One to see corruption. And that's a great picture of Christ. Do we see that in the supper? Yes, you do. We're told to observe the supper until Christ comes again. Doesn't that tell us that he's alive? We're serving a living Christ when we take the supper. Now, thirdly, is the law. Moses was told to put the law into the ark, and that stands for God's perfection. Now, I wish that we had time to deal more with this because there's a lot to say about the law and how that it relates to Christ and what Christ did in satisfaction to the law. I mean, there are really good things to talk about here. We could talk about the mercy seat and how it covers the law from view. And that's a great message to preach about how what Christ did covers the law uh, from the sight of God. Our sins are all covered by Christ and that lid of the mercy seat pictures that. But God said, put the law in there. Now, as you know, the law was written on tables of stone. They were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And God said, I want you to preserve the law. 
put the law into the Ark of the Covenant and keep it there, put it there for safekeeping. And that's what God did with Jesus. The law was in him for safekeeping. Well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now, you've just shot down everybody who says, well, Jesus changed things in the Old Testament. Oh, it's not so hard to live now under the law that we have now or what the grace that we have now because the law has been done away with. Oh, no, the law has not been done away with. The law is still there. We're still under obligation to obey God's law. It's just that God allowed grace to satisfy the law for us through Jesus Christ. But the law is still there. It's in Christ for safekeeping. So Jesus kept all of the law perfectly. That's why he's the Savior. That's why no one else can be the Savior. The best man is not good enough. Because there's never been one that's able to keep the law perfectly. But Jesus did. He said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the best keepers of the law. Or at least they thought so. And the people thought so. And when Jesus said, well, you've got to be better than that. You've got to keep, you've got to be better than, or have a better righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. And that's graphic to them because nobody keeps the law better than the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus said, you can't count on them. That's not good enough. He said, you have to be perfect. And they knew that none of them was perfect. And you and I face the very same dilemma. We're not perfect, and so we're not suitable to God. Jesus was perfect. And that's why when we come together to eat this bread and drink this cup, it represents him. It doesn't represent Gandhi. It doesn't represent Mohammed. It doesn't represent Buddha. It represents Jesus Christ because he's the only perfect one. He's the only one that can save us from our sins. So there you have comparisons. The ark speaks of Christ. The supper speaks of Christ. The ark is a great Old Testament picture. We've just scratched the surface of things that we can talk about here that relates to Jesus Christ. But that's the Old Testament picture, the greatest picture of the Old Testament of Jesus Christ. And when we get into the New Testament era, you know what the greatest picture that we have of Christ is, it's not that cross over there. And it's not somebody hanging on a cross. That's our greatest picture. Our greatest picture is the living Christ in his flesh and his blood. Christ who lives today. That's the greatest picture. We see it in the Lord's Supper. And so we thank God that he's given us this beautiful emblem that shows us who Jesus is. We are saved from the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ. So he said, this cup is the New Testament. New Testament. Same thing as new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and as we prepare ourselves for the supper tonight, Lord, we just thank you for the great sacrifice that Christ made. The beautiful pictures that we see in the Word of God and how as we follow this through that you are so particular about everything that was done. And Lord, just help us to 
understand that, that worship to you is just so important. And as we come together tonight, we want to remember the great sacrifice that you made. Bless our people. Help us, Lord, as we worship you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.